You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading is from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. 
Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray that we might see Christ clearly tonight because of it. We pray these things by the power of your spirit. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening. My name is Nathan, one of the pastors here, and I am so thrilled to be assembled together with you under God's word. Uh, we're continuing our work through the gospel according to John. This is the 20th week we've been in this book. It's been good. Well, have you ever been in the market for a new car, and then the car that you're interested in, now you start seeing everywhere? Like before... You didn't even know that like Honda CRVs like even existed, but now I'm interested in a Honda CRV, and like every other car on the road is a Honda CRV. Uh, nothing changed when that happens, right? Just the the world didn't change. There weren't more Honda CRVs that day than the day before. It's just that your vision changed, or you spend the entire morning pulling weeds like I did yesterday, and then. Now all you can see as you're driving around town and pulling into parking lots around the town is like weeds everywhere. They're everywhere. It's not that there were more weeds today than there were uh, the day before, but now your vision has changed. You're just seeing things differently. Well, John 9 is all about vision. Seeing and not seeing. Light and darkness. Blindness and sight. And what we just heard Leslie read to us from verses 1 through 41 uh, Jesus doesn't change throughout this chapter, but the vision of the other characters in the chapter does. So we're going to see this play out tonight in three movements. First, the blind man sees, and then the blind Pharisees grab their blindfolds, and then the blind man really sees. If that doesn't make much sense, we'll hang in there for a few minutes. First of all, the blind man sees. All right, first of all, blindness today and then blindness in the first century are, are different things. Not different biologically, uh, but culturally, and the implications and the consequences of blindness are much different. Today, with seeing eye dogs, with Braille, with ACA compliance, uh, all of these things, many blind Americans today are adamant that they actually don't have a disability. But this is certainly not the case for the scene that Jesus enters into in John chapter 9. The only way for this blind man to survive is merely and purely from the generosity, from the charity of other people giving to him. He's physically not able to work in any meaningful way, and therefore he's not able to provide any of the things that he needs for himself to survive. He has no prospect of marriage. He has no prospect of honor for the rest of his life. This would be true, likely, for most people in these days who had a significant injury or disability, but perhaps unlike the paralyzed man that we saw Jesus heal in John chapter 5, um, this man was born blind, meaning because he was born blind, not he didn't receive his blindness later in life by some illness or by some injury. Uh, it, was a, it was the assumption of the Jews of the day that his blindness came because of some divine retribution for the sin of his parents, perhaps the sin of him as he was in the womb. So not only would this man be poor and extremely needy, he was someone who would be easy to ignore because the same people walked by the same man every single day of his life, but he would be especially easy to ignore because it was the assumption that 
Well, he deserves this. I don't know quite why, but there's some cause for his blindness. But perhaps unlike the others who walked by this man every day, when Jesus walks by him in verse 1, he saw. He saw the man. You see that? We just blow right through that in verse 1. But Jesus sees him. Here was a man created by God who bears God's image, who is worthy of dignity, who is worthy of recognition as a human being. And it's Jesus' seeing and acknowledgement of this man that then causes the disciples to see, to see this man and then ask him this question. They ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus' answer is short, but power-packed. The disciples are asking for the cause of his blindness, but Jesus, like, ignores that. He's not interested in the cause, and instead he tries to hone in on the purpose. What is the purpose of this man's blindness? It was not that this man sinned, he says in verse 3, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, admittedly, this statement opens a lid on a whole world of God's sovereignty, of suffering, of disability, of pain. But since this is not necessarily Jesus' point, he blows past that really quickly, doesn't he? And just to get back to himself as the revelation of of God to the world, we'll, we'll just spend a minute on this too. Knowing that God is sovereign over all things, including suffering, should come as enormous comfort to us as humans. That he isn't more committed to a world where suffering can happen, but is instead so sovereign a king that through suffering, that through pain, he can work and even bring good and joy through suffering. That this is incredible. So incredible that Paul, with enormous hope through his own personal suffering in 2 Corinthians 4, can write that this suffering, this momentary affliction, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In comparison with eternity, in comparison of the love of God through Christ, this suffering that Paul is thinking through, struggling through, is dealing with, it feels light and momentary. It feels, and as he understands it to be, preparatory. And while it might seem that Jesus is just cold and dismissive here, we know that he's not unfamiliar with his own suffering, and we know that he's certainly not unfamiliar with the suffering that awaits him. The fact that we have a high priest who is able to empathize with our weaknesses, who is able to empathize with our suffering, and in fact walking with us, but then is not just walking with us, but is actually able to carry us through suffering comes as enormous comfort. And reflecting on the story in Pilgrim's Progress, Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, I remember the picture of the character Hopeful. Hopeful is this personified character of of hope. And Hopeful is in the river holding Christian, the main character, holding Christian up. Hopeful has has his arm around Christian and lifts up his hands and says, Fear not, brother, I feel the bottom. That is just what Jesus does in our trials. He puts his arm around us, points up, and says, Fear not. The water may be deep, but the bottom is good. So Jesus says that there is not only purpose in this man's blindness, not just for however many years that this man had been suffering through blindness, that God has been using to prepare him for this moment of sight, not just for the actual first moment, but then on and into into eternity, but also God's purpose is for the witnesses this day that see God's 
work and his glory at work. And not just for the witnesses that day, but the witnesses for the next many thousands of years who would read about this story. There was purpose in this man's blindness. So in continuing with the same light and darkness theme that we've been tracing since chapter 1, Jesus says that the time of darkness is coming. The light of the world is going to be taken away from the world. So Jesus wants to leave as many residual reflections of the light in the world so that people are still able to see when he's gone. So he does something weird. He, he squats down and he starts getting some, some dirt and then he spits in the dirt and he starts rubbing it around until he's got some mud and then he wipes it on this guy's eyes. Like, this is really weird, especially considering, like, I don't know if you've actually thought about this, but, like, how much spit is actually required <laughs> to make some mud to wipe on a guy's eyes? Like, it's pretty gross. Like, imagine if you're just this guy sitting on the ground, day after day, this day is unlike any other day, You've got a bowl or perhaps a cup that you've got holding up if people are walking by, hoping that people will drop some coins in. You hear a commotion and the, and the people start talking over there about, yeah, 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 same thing I've heard so many times. They're asking about, was it me, my sin, or was it my parents' sin? Same old thing. Perhaps even like Job's friends, some of these folks might stop and sit by you one day and ask if there's any sin you need to repent of that's caused this blindness. But then something different happens. Something different. It's some, so you feel, you, you hear one of the people coming by you, and then you hear spitting. You're like, what is going on? And then, out of nowhere, you feel like wet, gross dirt on your eyes. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is very strange. Why'd you wipe that on my face? But then, for the first time, he speaks to you, and he says, go wash at the pool of Siloam. You're like, what? What? You just wiped spitty mud on my face and then just told me to go wash it off. I could have, we could have saved ourselves the trouble and you just not rubbed the mud on my face, right? But I have no idea what is happening or who you are, but could it be? Could it be that you have the power to do something with my eyes? So I'll go stumbling along blindly, but you know the roads and the streets of the city, so you know which way it is to the pool of Siloam, that famous pool that in the week-long feast that just finished, that we've seen in chapter 7 and 8, the Feast of Tabernacles, the same pool, the pool of Siloam, where the high priest would draw water out of every day and pour out. Last week at the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the crowds, they wouldn't let you get too close. It's not like you could have seen it anyway, so you might as well stay back. But you heard rumors about something different that happened this year at the Feast of Tabernacles. There's this rabbi that came down from the north, and he's causing a scene, and he went over one day to that pool, and he stood in front of the pool, and he said, I am the living water. Not like the pool of water that just turns to mud when you pour it onto the ground. I am the living water. He said, maybe, maybe you're starting to put it together as you walk towards the pool of Siloam. Maybe this is connected. Maybe, maybe that was even that guy whose spit is still on my face. And now you're getting anxious. Could it, could it really be? You want to get, get there faster. You want to see what's going to happen when you get to the pool, but not too fast. Certainly, if you try to run or even walk briskly, that certainly means that you'll fall on your face. But you finally get there and you wash the now dried dirt and spit 
from your face. Have you ever seen any of those YouTube videos of, of a baby who has a cochlear implant put into their ear? Like for the first nine or ten months of their life, they've never been able to hear. And then they turn, the, the doctor turns the implant on and the mother speaks to the child. And <laughs> sorry, just think about this. Like the, the baby for the first time just starts bouncing around. They can hear and the mother and the father and the doctors are all crying and I'm crying in front of my laptop. We're all crying. There's smiles and joys, joy and elation and tears. And can you imagine? We don't know how old this guy is. Can you imagine? For the first time in his entire life, he sees. I just have to imagine he just falls down to the ground in joy, in tears, in bewilderment. What just happened? Who was that that wiped mud on my face and caused me to see? But after a moment of reflection, he evidently gets moving. His neighbors, his parents, a bunch of folks who have known about him or known him since he was a blind infant, uh, they don't understand. Lots of people are seeing him walking around. They're like, they don't get it. They think that it must not be him, but someone who looks like him, an imposter from some other city, because they know this guy. He's been blind their entire, his entire life, and now all of a sudden, he's walking by, he's looking directly into their eyes, and he sees them. Like, what's going on? This doesn't make any sense. And in verse 10, he keeps telling them. They don't believe him, but he keeps saying, no, I'm the guy, it's me. But it doesn't make any sense. How did this happen? These are not gullible pre-moderns who just think that every day people start like regaining their sight or something. They, while they have a pre-modern understanding, they certainly understand science and biology. This is not something that happens every day. And in fact, we found out later that in all of Jewish history, perhaps the history of the entire world, this has never happened to someone who has been born blind. But they keep asking, how did this happen? I don't know. He answers in verse 11. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. There's a whole lot he doesn't know about this guy. He doesn't know hardly anything about what just happened or who did it to him. But he knows one thing that he sees. The light of life has come and he sees. He doesn't know how or why, but he knows that he can see and an entire world that was just the same as it was the day before when he couldn't see. It's the same, but his vision has changed. And now he sees. The people don't understand, but good news, we, we, we know who can explain this. One who, the, the ones who can help us, help us understand, the Pharisees. Let's, let's get to them. Let's see what they have to say. Maybe they can help us explain it. And this is like when like some big event happens in Albuquerque and all of the news outlets call Mayor Keller's office and they're like, uh, does the mayor have a comment on the wind today? <laughs> or does, what does the mayor think about the massive power outage? What's his comment? This is a huge event that's happened and if we can get a comment from the Pharisees, then this will not only help us understand what's going on, but what to think for ourselves. So this gets us to our second section. While the blind man sees, here's where the irony of this chapter begins to just drip off the page like grease. Now, the blind Pharisees grab their blindfolds. 
The crowds bring the former blind man in front of the Pharisees, and this man still has to be elated. The people's excitement is like impossible to measure and filled with joy. They come, all of them, and they're like, help us understand what has happened here. The Pharisees are like, all right, tell us what happened. And undoubtedly, the rumors had outraced the crowds, and the the Pharisees know who and what had already happened. So after the man recounts what Jesus had done to him, some of the Pharisees say in verse 16, this man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And you've got to imagine like all the smiles and all the laughter and the excitement and all of that just like, right? Like the record stops. Like, wait, what? What did you just say? Are you kidding? And they're like, yeah, seriously, according to our traditions, it's against the law to knead or work dough on the Sabbath. And the word for mud here is the same for clay or dough. So yeah, I feel you and we sure are happy that you can see now, but... I hate to break it to you, but whoever did this is a lawbreaker. And since lawbreakers uh, can't uh, be from God, whoever did this to you is not from God. Blindfolds. Like the light is getting brighter, so they're reaching for the blindfolds so that they cannot see. They got to cover up. And as we've touched on in several other chapters in John, the Sabbath was always about rest. It was, a, it was a good gift from God to his people to weekly remind them that he is God and they are not. That he has the power to create and then rest. And that we must rely on him for his good provision. What better day than the Sabbath for God the Son to show up and out of the dust of the ground restore this man's sight to push back the curse of Genesis 3. What better day than the Sabbath to give this man rest after a lifetime of begging? What better day than this than to give this man and his parents a rest after a lifetime of misplaced shame? But no, this man, he needed some mud with, with his spit So there's no way that he can be from God. But even that kind of thinking is too much for some of the Pharisees. In verse 16 and 17, there begins to be some division amongst them. Some of them seem to be thinking, no, this appears to be someone from God. There's no way he isn't from God. This kind of thing doesn't just happen. So the first group says, all right, you're right, this doesn't happen, so we must not have all of our facts straight. Maybe you're right that this stuff doesn't happen apart from God, so uh, this must not have actually happened the way that it's being reported to us. So go get the guy's parents in here. We've got to find out who this guy actually is. So everyone's just kind of sitting around waiting for the parents to show up and it's like really awkward and quiet and everybody's like checking Instagram or something so they don't have to like actually look at each other and have the like painful small talk as they wait but then finally okay they're here verse 19 they say all right is this your son who you say was born blind how then does he now see to which they say yep he's our son yep he was blind and yep he was even born blind he's been like this from birth they seem to be wanting to get after the or try to Maybe find some crack in their testimony that maybe he was just blind just later in life. Maybe he's only been blind for like a week or something. But no, he was born blind. But then the parents parry this last question. None of the first answers 
that they've given are controversial, will get them in trouble. But the answer to the last question will. The question of how did this happen? How does he now see? I said, I don't know, ask, ask him. He's a grown man. He doesn't need mommy and daddy to answer for him. But John tells us why they're so reticent to answer. John gives us this little aside in verses 22 and 23. He says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already, already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. They know of Jesus' growing reputation, and they know of the growing opposition amongst the Jewish leadership. And they know that to attribute this kind of healing to Jesus means that they would be attributing, him, attributing to him the status of Messiah. They all know of the promises of Isaiah, that the kingdom of the Messiah will be here when the lame start walking, when the deaf start hearing, and when the blind start seeing. So while they must be pretty confident that that's exactly what's going on here, that this man must be the Messiah, to say so would cost them something. They've shared the same reputation of shame with their son for his entire life, but even so, they've still got some social standing left. They're allowed to meet with God's people and have some sort of acceptance with the community, but to claim Christ would be the end of that. Their vision of what the good life actually is would come to an end. Their vision and hope of social acceptance and respect would come to an end, and that's just a bridge too far for them. They've deflected the Pharisees' questions, and now these leaders are getting frustrated. So they're like, get him back in here. Let's go through this again. Verse 24, they tell him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, they're likely not meaning, all right, buddy, like, stop praising Jesus, but praise God. Give God the glory for your sight. But they're more likely doing what Joshua did with Achan in Joshua 7, if you know that story. They're basically saying, blind man who now sees before God, own up to us that you are leaving some sort of evidence out of this. Own up to it that you're hiding something from us. Own up to it that whatever this guy did to you, he's a sinner. But as frustrated as they're getting, perhaps the man is getting more frustrated. And he's getting a little saucy too while, while he's at it. If you see that in verse 27, he says, I've told you already and you would listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Saucy. Uh, if they were frustrated before, the leaders now are just getting angry. Their answer is that if Jesus really did what he just did, then he's a Sabbath breaker. And if he's a Sabbath breaker, then we must not just not commend him, but we also should probably take him out of the city and stone him. We are Moses' disciples. We follow the law. And if you are happy about the fact, oh seeing man, that he broke the law, you clearly aren't with Moses like you are in with us. So since you want to leave Moses for this upstart lawbreaker, maybe we ought to just take you out of the city with him. We'll just knock two birds out with one stone. That was a bad Sorry, that didn't mean to go that way. They're stoning. They're not going to forget it. <laughs> the former blind man, though, he sees better than anyone in the room. He's incredulous. Never before in human history has anything like this happened. 
and you want to kill him for twisting some dirt in his fingers? It's insane. But more blindfolds, because it's getting too bright in here, they answer in verse 34, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. The whole time, they've been trying to get him and his parents to admit that he wasn't born blind, and then once he challenges them, oh, he's been, he's been born blind all along. You were born in your blindness and in your sin, but they can't see through their fury, and the irony is completely lost on them, and what his parents feared would happen to them actually now happens to him. They throw him out. But though Jesus has healed his physical sight, the the blind man sees, and then the Pharisees put on their blindfolds, now Jesus is going to really heal the man. The blind man really sees. He's thrown out, and Jesus, who's been absent for quite a bit here, right? We haven't seen him since the beginning of the chapter. Through all of this courtroom scene, he shows up, and he finds the man. He saw him at first, and now he comes and he finds him. And one fourth century pastor says that the Jews cast him out of the temple, and now the Lord of the temple finds him. Amazing. His own parents have hung him out to dry, but perhaps as he's walking away out of the assembly, the words of David in Psalm 27 might have come as an encouragement on this day or perhaps later in life when David himself wrote, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. We've seen, as we've gone through this chapter, we've seen this man's faith beginning to grow. He went from knowing next to nothing about Jesus, calling him Jesus or some teacher, and then later calling him a prophet, and then saying that he is sent from God. He's perhaps becoming more clear about Jesus precisely because of the controversy, controversy that's surrounding him, that's swirling him around him. The doubt about who Jesus is, through that, his vision is clarifying. And have you ever experienced this? Like, perhaps you accepted something to be true just because that's what your family believes or because you're an American or something. Certainly with your own faith in Christ. But then people start to ask you questions. And then maybe your parents won't even back you in your answers. And then with a fork in the road, for the first time as an adult, as an adult, you have to decide, who is it that I see? Who is it that I believe? Not just because we believe, but for me. What am I going to do? And for the first time in your life, there might have to be a counting of the cost. That human relationships could be lost, that reputations could be lost, that what we think of the good life could be lost. So is Jesus worth it? For the sake of Christ, is he worth it? But the man still here doesn't quite know what's going on. Though he can see Jesus, he can't really see Jesus. He sees him, but he doesn't see him. So after finding him, Jesus asks the man in verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? You see, he doesn't see. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. 
For the first time, he sees Jesus to be the Son of Man, that Daniel 7 figure who receives dominion and authority over all nations from the ancient of days. This is God himself, and the spiritual scales now fall from his eyes, and he sees. The Honda CRVs have been there all along, but now he sees them. He's like Harry Potter. Or something that who's like lived, thought he just lived in this bland, old, boring muggle world, and now there's a whole new world that's opened to him that he didn't even know existed, and now he sees it. The Son of Man, the God who heals, has been there all along, and now he can see him. He would have been able to see Jesus without Jesus first giving him his physical sight. You don't have to physically see, to spiritually see. But Jesus had this entire episode unfold in the way that it did to be a kind of enacted and actual parable for our lives. For this man's life and for the way in which he saves. So in in this sense, this man becomes the model disciple for all who would come after him. That Though I was blind, now I see. Jesus comes to him, he heals him, and then he sees. Despite opposition, despite conflict, despite potential persecution, he worships Jesus and he follows him. And in affirming this man's newfound faith, Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment I come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus has come to divide those who will see him in the sight of faith from those who would willfully put on their blindfolds. And Jesus has already said something very similar to this when he came to another man who didn't quite understand who Jesus was or what he was doing. Remember way back in chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus? He came to him in the night, in the darkness, perhaps worried about the social consequences of coming to Jesus in the light. And Jesus told him, He told Nicodemus, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus doesn't come into the darkness of the world and into the darkness of our hearts with light just to expose us in shame. He doesn't come to sear us with the heat of his light to cause pain. He comes to expose the darkness of our world and of our hearts to show us our hearts. It's like this this huge halogen light, this lamp. He shines to show us that our hearts are self-seeking, to show us that our hearts are self-promoting, that there are habits and thoughts that you would never want the world to know, that there are corners of your heart that would fill you with dread if they were to be found out. That there are perhaps even places of shame, like this man's blindness. Places of darkness in your life that aren't your fault. But the light has come that we might see our darkness, that we might stop avoiding and pretending like it's not there. And that we might come into the healing warmth of his light and of his forgiveness. The former blind man sees the light and he loves it. He wants more of it. But there are a few lingering Pharisees who hear their conversation and hear what Jesus is implying about them and they ask him, are we also blind? And Jesus says to them in 41, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. 
He's not meaning or implying that if people don't see Jesus, then it's just cool to remain in your ignorance and your blindness. Those who remain in their darkness of, or in hatred of God stand still condemned before him. We've seen that throughout this book. But what Jesus is explicitly condemning here is a knowing, willful rejection of himself. A knowing, willful rejection of God. Like we said last week, to know all that we know about Jesus and still be indifferent to him is no small sin. Jesus did not come for the healthy, but he came for the sick. That's not to say that some of us are healthy. We're all sick. We're all weak. We're all blind. But only the sick come to the doctor for healing. There's nothing inherently better about the person who the doctor heals over the person that the doctor doesn't heal, right? It's by grace that you've been saved, not of works, though, that no man may boast, but the doctor can only save those who first come to his office and say, I need help. I cannot heal myself. There is nothing that I can do about my condition. I need you to heal me. Spurgeon once preached, it is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness It is not our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. When the huge halogen light of Christ shines and exposes, how does that hit you? This week, Stephen Hawking died. And famously, he once said that religion is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the darkness To that, Oxford professor John Lennox says that Hawking's atheism is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the light. If you aren't a Christian, if you've never seen him, if you've never been confronted by the light of the gospel, that Jesus' death can become your life, that your prior understanding of the good life needs to die because it's leading you to death, that it's leading you to discontentment and a lack of joy, And in his work on your behalf, his resurrection life becomes your resurrection life. That the good life that you thought you always wanted now opens to a new world that was always there that you were just too blind to see. That the love of God is infinitely greater than anything you could have ever imagined. But if you've never seen him, first of all, can I just say how glad I am, how glad we are that you are here here. I'm so glad that you're considering Jesus, that you're considering who he is, considering what he's done, considering what he's calling for you in your own life. Keep searching. Keep considering him. In John 9, the blind man has both his physical and spiritual sight healed. The the people who can physically see, though, throughout the chapter, they remain blind. And they keep grabbing every blindfold in sight to make sure they stay blind. Would you In humility, keep gazing at him. Perhaps keep squinting until he makes himself clear to you. Jesus is inviting you into the light to come and follow him. After the service, or as Clint said earlier, over coffee this week, we would love to talk with you about the light of life and about what living your life in the light of life might look like. If you already are a Christian, would you keep coming to the light of the world? Would you 
keep coming to the light of life, that as that skilled mountain guide who is leading you home has the headlight that we all need and lack, would you, in the light of the gospel, further commit to being part of this community of light? That being here on Sundays actually really matters. That being regular with your gospel communities in our smaller discipleship groups really matters. Not just so that you can get more light, but as now Jesus and Paul would later say, that we become the light of the world. We shine like lights in the darkness that we might see ourselves as the way through which God ministers, the way through which God encourages, the way through which God shows people the way home. The way through which others can see Christ's church and Christ's church does not exist primarily for you and what you can get out of it. Christ's church is the light of Christ. And because of what the light of Christ has done in my life, now how can I be a part of what it might mean for yours? Because the light of the world has made us into the light of the world that the gospel might be quick on our lips, that we might be inviting others into our homes to see the light, to meet the doctor, that they might see him, the light of the world, the very son of God, and see. And our hope is what the same John who wrote this gospel account would later write, in 1 John 3, 2, he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is our hope. Let's pray toward that end. Father, we pray that you would give clear vision of yourself, that you would give clear vision of God the Son, that by the power of the Spirit, you might bring sight where there is presently blindness. That those of us who are seeing might see more clearly. Father, we pray that you would do a great work in and amongst your people here. Through each other, through us being the light of the world that, it, that comes from a light of the world that is behind us and in us in Christ. We might all become more like you. We will never be fully like you until you come, Lord Jesus, until we see you as you really are. So to that end, we pray even now, come, Lord Jesus, we pray, come. Even today, even tonight, Lord, we come. We pray that you might come. We long for your coming. We long for you to make things new, for you to make things right for there to be justice, for there to be mercy, for there to be salvation, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.